0: This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome back to Fed Life here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Bank stocks might look like dicey propositions these days. There's nothing to focus investors' minds like the possibility of a run on banks. It's not 2008, though, and we probably won't see the failures of hundreds of more banks like we did back then. Earlier, I discussed this with certified financial planner Art Stein. Art, actually, before we get to the whole banking question and what investors should be worried about right now, which seems to be about everything, I wanted to ask you, here we are with a quarter of the calendar 2023 behind us, maybe review some of the returns in the TSP funds and the markets generally so far.
1: Yeah, well, the returns have been very good so far this year. And year to date, which means, you know, from the beginning of the year through yesterday, all the funds are up. The G fund's up 0.8%, F fund's up 2%, C fund a little less than 4 S fund 2%, I fund 3%, and the L income fund is up 1.5%. So it's been a very good year. Now, since this problem happened with the Silicon Valley Bank which really was March 9th and 10th then we see that the stock funds are actually down but taking that into account since the beginning of the year the stock funds are still up and you know had a good quarter so what's an investor going to do to begin with they need to look at you know what do they actually have at risk and of course government employees and retirees have this great set of guarantees that no one else has, and they really don't need to worry as much. I mean, if you're a federal employee, it's not like you work in the private sector like we've been reading how even major companies like Amazon and Google, et cetera, have been laying off thousands of employees. Well, the government doesn't work that way. And actually, you know, if you have a bank run, there are a lot of government people that will be working much harder federal retirees again are in a much better situation they have a federal annuity that's guaranteed that's their pension and FERS retirees also have social security which is actually guaranteed both of those have cost of living adjustments you know they've got their health insurance so they should be in a much more secure situation now in terms of their actual investments for the C and the S fund, which are the stock funds, how much do they own of the banks that have been affected so far? So of the banks that have been affected so far, the Silicon Valley Bank was in the S fund, as was First Republic, I guess, at the end of 2022. But I think that they were switched to the S&P 500 index, not by the TSP, but by the people that run these indexes. You know, it's not a TSP decision. They're just using indexes and those investments are managed by BlackRock and some other companies. So there's no immediate concern. Now, if we had massive bank runs in the United States, you know, that's obviously going to kill the stock market. And I'm not quite sure what it's going to do to the bond market because there might be a flight to safety and bonds might look good to a lot of investors. But I don't see that happening because, one, Silicon Valley Bank was a really unusual situation. They clearly didn't manage their investments very well, and it didn't match up with their liabilities. But even they could have survived if there hadn't been what we call a bank run. And a bank run is when people just start pulling their money out of the bank, even though they may not have to. Silicon Valley Bank, such a large percentage of their deposits were not insured. And that's not true of most other banks. I've read that as much as 90% of the value of the deposits in Silicon Valley Bank were not insured because they were over the FDIC limit. And in a typical bank, that's closer to 20
0: or 30%. We're speaking with certified financial planner Art Stein. So the question is, getting back to, say, some of the TSP funds that might have had these in them as part of the you know index funds, If they are such a small percentage of these index funds, what's the mechanism by which something occurring at Silicon Valley Bank and a couple of the others, European banks, affect the stock market so much?
1: Well, because one, they are part of the stock market, you know, clearly their stock values have gone down. So to the extent that those bank stocks are held by the C and the S fund, there's one effect, but also, you know... These types of bank failures are seen as bad for the economy, so people tend to sell stocks when they happen, and that affects the entire stock market.
0: And do you sense that there's maybe a almost an underlying anxiety these days because people are looking at Social Security, seeing the Congress's refusal to even consider anything substantive to try to extend the solvency of that fund, of the, of the Social Security? And the same thing is true of Medicare, really, for that matter is also unsustainable and if you look at the trends in healthcare spending by the federal government and then you look at interest rates and then we hear all these warnings about how much of the federal budget will have to be devoted to paying the service on the national debt and you add that all up it's almost like the couple of bank failures are the straw that's breaking the camel's back in a lot of people's minds I think
1: it's way too soon to talk about breaking the camel's back and remember with Medicare and Social Security The government can just print the money to pay the bills, and everybody expects that. I expect that. I don't think any senator or congressman is really going to let those programs go bankrupt, They're not going to want to be around if they were part of voting against the money needed to continue those payments. There are just way too many people dependent upon that. But if the government is just printing more and more money to pay those and they haven't made any other reforms, you know, you expect that to be inflationary. And, you know, we've seen inflation go up a lot. And then the question you would want to ask is, well, if we expect inflation to remain high you know, because of the deficits in the Social Security Trust Fund and the Medicare Trust Fund and things like that, how does that affect our investment strategy for long-term and short-term investors? And high inflation reduces the purchasing power of the bond funds, F and G, and long-term, you would expect it to increase the value of stocks because companies can charge more And historically, when inflation has hit, you know, long term stock prices and dividends have adjusted.
0: Right. So you've got this situation then, I guess what I meant when I said the straw breaking the camel's back, I meant from an investor flight or sell standpoint, not from the government going to collapse. But people see the trends and they see the size of the debt relative to GDP. And it's going to be bigger than GDP in a short while. I think at some point that dawns on people that, yes, it can print money, but it's not what we want the nation to be doing in perpetuity, is printing money at the levels it has been for, say, the past five years.
1: You know, Tom, I think that you know individual investors, what they need to do is to have clear and appropriate investment goals, to have a suitable allocation between the stock and the bond funds, and for their outside investments, between stock investments and bond investments, and then they just need to maintain perspective and a long term view and long term discipline. And that to me, you know, as an investment manager, means when stock prices go way down, we buy more. And if bond prices go way down, we buy more bond funds. You know, you want to be a little counter cyclical. And historically, that would have given you a much higher rate of return and for anybody trying to understand these things and then to invest accordingly it's very important to understand the difference between stocks and bonds and how that affects your investments but if you really want to get into it then you need to understand things that you know only really sophisticated bond traders do i think that people should look at the historic returns and really what that means historically is that Stock funds over long periods of time outperformed the bond funds by a significant amount, and that difference was high enough to make putting up with the greater volatility of the stock funds worthwhile, because they you know, they tended to have a much higher rate of return. Not every year, maybe not every five years, and in a few cases, not even every 10 years. But the bond funds very unlikely to maintain purchasing power after we take into account taxes and inflation. So if you're putting your you know long-term money in something that's losing purchasing power, that's a problem.
0: So now is not the time to lose your nerve.
1: Well, I don't think it's ever a time to lose your nerve, but I would say have an appropriate investment goal. If you're retired and you need money in the short term from your investments, it should be invested in bank accounts and short-term bond funds. For the money that you're going to need in 10, 20, and 30 years, you need to have that heavily weighted towards the stock funds.
0: Certified financial planner, Art Stein. And that's it for this week's edition of FedLife. Write to us at federalnewsnetwork.com with your concerns, and we'll try to cover them here. Until next week, I'm Tom Temin. Thanks for
2: listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife.
0: Welcome to FedLife, a
2: weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temen.
0: Hello and welcome to the show. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission regularly issues results of studies on workplace trends related to discrimination claims and other matters. One recent report concerned the federal workforce, specifically use of alternative dispute resolution. Federal news networks, Drew Friedman and I discussed the highlights and what it could mean if you ever face what you suspect is unlawful discrimination. And Drew, if you would, just begin with a quick review of what an alternative dispute resolution is what it looks like.
2: Thanks, Tom. ADRs generally let these two parties who may be involved in a workplace dispute resolve that dispute without the need for litigation. So without, like you said, the need to go to court. So these can include things like negotiation, mediation, and arbitration. Those are the different kind of methods that can be used in ADRs. And EEOC says there are a lot of benefits to this process because, you know, as you said, it can make things a little bit more quickly to resolve, and you don't have to go through the costs of going to court for something. Uh, It also often results in good, pretty good compromise for both parties and is just an easier way to kind of get through some of these issues.
0: That's right, and there's that other way, which is the offer of a resolution, but that's a separate type of ADR, I guess you will, and EEOC has been trying to get agencies to use that authority that they've had since, I think, 1999. You know, the question is do agencies want to give what they think a court might give and then you know how do they ever know who is right i guess is there reluctance i don't know all right so the EEOC did a survey of agencies ADR programs and these live in the these live in the agencies and not with EEOC necessarily what did they find out
2: right each agency will have its own ADR program and of this or in this survey EEOC looked at 24 different agencies so it's not necessarily represented representative of the entire government but it does give a pretty good picture of how some agencies adr programs operate they looked at things for example how often do agencies actually take advantage of or use their adr program how employees are perceiving the agency program And if how agencies are conducting or managing that process for getting those disputes resolved. So some of the findings were pretty interesting from this latest EEOC report. Only about two thirds of the agencies in the survey had complete information available on their websites for their ADR policy. And EEO says that's an important thing to do because without posting it on the website, that can become a challenge for employees to learn about the process, understand what it is, and ultimately use it if it comes to that. There's also some issues for uh, training managers and supervisors in the ADR program for several agencies. So for example, in the report and in the survey, only about 30% of agencies were providing annual ADR training to their agency leaders, and the rest, 70%, were not doing that. So there's some issues with, you know, basically, I guess just making sure that agencies, supervisors, and leaders understand the process and then can take effect. There also was A challenge with agencies actually offering ADR as an option to employees. They only did this in about 70% of cases. And it really depends on the agency. Some agencies said it, you know, they don't necessarily have a straightforward policy for whether or not they're going to offer ADR as an option. And it's just a case by case basis. But then when you look also at the 70 percent where it was offered as an option only about one-third of the parties who were involved in that actually chose to participate
0: interesting results because we are talking about eeo issues that is to say cases of discrimination it's not every prohibited personnel practice that would come before an eeo type of dispute and i think these can be super sensitive and we have a super sensitive era that we're living in with respect to EEO types of related issues. And maybe that's part of the reluctance to trust people. The agency that you have a dispute with is going to give you a good result from an ADR. And that gets to the issue of employees who don't say, see the ADR process as necessarily legitimate. And so that's a big struggle for agencies to overcome to get people to even want to do it in the first place.
2: That is definitely a challenge, not necessarily for every agency, but, you know, Tom, it does make sense that for federal employees who may want to participate in this process or are interested in it, they should trust that it is working correctly. And EEOC said that agencies generally in the survey that they conducted were not convinced of the program's effectiveness. So agencies found that A lot of employees didn't really trust the agency to be a fair and neutral party throughout the entire process. And that, of course, can lead to, as I said, limited participation for federal employees who are actually choosing to to use ADR. And there is some legitimacy to that as well. In the report, The EEOC found that about 19% of agencies let the manager who was accused in a dispute or in a complaint be the settlement authority on that complaint, which obviously leads to some issues of the fairness of the process. But on the other hand, from the agency's perspective, there also is an issue of resources here. So maybe for some smaller agencies, it can be difficult to have supervisors who are willing to participate in the ADR process and understand it well enough to be that settlement authority.
0: I guess the other question is, did anything positive come out of this ADR survey?
2: There were a couple positives here as well one was that larger agencies interestingly were more often able to offer ADR options to employees compared with smaller mid-sized agencies that could be just having to deal with the resources that are available to you know larger agencies it might be a little bit easier for them but EEOC said that basically more research would be needed if they were going to figure out the real reason for that another positive was that generally most the vast majority of agencies who participated in this survey said that they really do want to encourage more widespread use of ADR so there is this trend in the direction of they want this to be an option for employees when possible and it and maybe it's just a matter of having the agencies have a better system to have that operate correctly.
0: Yeah, so there's some mechanics there and there's also the sense of goodwill and also the sense of having to avoid the appearance of a conflict of interest if somebody's judge and jury on the case that they sparked in the first place. I guess maybe the issue in the big departments is that there are other places to go where maybe you can get a more neutral hearing. I mean, I would think in a place like DHS, you could go to another component and someone could look at it objectively. I don't know whether that ever happens or not. So what does the EEOC recommend then to try to get this thing going again or more popular?
2: They do want agencies to address some of these issues that were pretty broad that they saw in the surveys. So they said, for example, agencies should be holding briefings with senior leaders about both the successes and concerns within the ADR program and develop some required annual training for both agency leaders as well as all employees so everyone kind of understands the process a little bit better. EEOC also gave some resources to try to help agencies do this better. So. For one, they created a sample survey that agencies can give to employees who participated in the ADR process and then, you know, just to get feedback from employees on what worked or didn't work with the ADR program and then agencies could use those surveys to better understand where there might be some weak spots and update those policies when needed.
0: The EEOC also issued a report recently on the process known as offers of resolution, which I classify under one of the ADR, one of the mechanisms for alternative dispute resolution. I did an interview, which aired last week, with Virginia Andreu. She's the assistant director of the special operations, the federal special operations division of the EEOC. And that's an issue worth reviewing again, because there is that option for offers of resolution. And these have to be detailed to constitute a legally bona fide offer. And what does the EEOC say about that in the report?
2: So EEOC does want agencies to take advantage of this more when they can. It's something that is, again, a way to avoid reaching courts, reaching litigation, and can be beneficial to both agencies and just both parties within a dispute. But interestingly, EEOC also found some different findings in a a recent report showing that more than $66 million was spent in 2020 settlements, which is a 25% increase since the year before. And more than half of those complaints were alleged discrimination based on retaliation. So that's the most common reason that employees are getting these settlements. The other common types were age and disability discrimination. So EEOC issues these kind of annual reports to look at, you know, how much is the government spending and how many formal complaints are there to kind of track trends. And what they did find was that the total number of findings of discrimination out of all of those initial complaints actually increased between 2019 and 2020 as well. That is the most recent data that we have available from the EEOC.
0: And let's talk about the also report that came out from EEOC. This is federal workforce demographics. And I guess it didn't change as much as people wanted it to change. Or what did they say about that? What are some of the top line findings there?
2: This was another pretty interesting report from the EEOC. They've clearly been busy at work with a lot of federal workforce reports lately. The findings for the demographics. And it's no accident either, by the way. Right, exactly. From the demographics report, it was a bit of a mixed bag. What they found was that racial diversity specifically is increasing more in the federal government workforce, but is it is often more concentrated in the lower ranks of the general schedule. So, for example, Hispanic and Latina women have had a they now represent a bigger portion of the federal workforce they rose from 3.7% to 4.5% within a year. But if you separate that by GS level, they comprise a much higher percentage of the lower ranks of the GS versus GS 11 and above and the senior executive service. So while that is, you know, it is important to to see that this is kind of evening out. That's what the the EEOC says. It is also important to try to look at, you know, recruitment and retention factors or methods that maybe were successful for some areas that can be then applied to others.
0: All right. So a good look at how things are changing, maybe not as fast as some people would hope. Do they have any recommendations, the EEOC, for get this thing up and getting up a little bit more?
2: The EEOC says that agencies should try to look at practices that did well for recruitment and retention of employees. So the one example I used with Hispanic and Latino women, that is increasing. So maybe look at, you know, what were some of the ways that they were recruiting successfully that area of the workforce and that demographic, and then kind of replicating that for other areas as well. One way to maybe do that and even to get employees up in higher ranks of the GS and into the SES is through different internal agency programs. So mentoring programs might encourage people to apply more for those higher positions.
0: Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. We'll pause here for a short commercial break. And when we return, certified financial planner Art Stein with some perspective on the big banking hiccup and what it means for investors. This is FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Tom Tamman.